Thank you, Daryl, for reading the word. What a glorious passage that is from Colossians chapter 1 about the glory of our risen Christ. This evening, we're going to be looking at a little different picture of Christ as we look at Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. We uh, once again have the privilege of of being under the preaching of God's Word. I include myself in that as even though I'm delivering the sermon, I, I um, am blessed by God's Word and, and it is a privilege to, to preach God's Word and I thank you for that. Our pastor, um, as some of you are aware, is away at an um, ordination and installation service for one of the ministers, uh, a young man that's been serving on staff and is now becoming one of the ministers at Christ Evangelical Presbyterian Church. So we're grateful for his involvement there um, and uh, pray God's blessing upon uh, their ministry there. Um, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. Um, this is a journey that, that I really started when I first came here three and a half years ago. So thank you for your patient endurance as we've gone through this. I was thinking um, now with, with streaming services, a lot of people binge watch a show and they'll they'll go through a whole season in a matter of hours. I do not do that. And sometimes I lose track between episodes of where we've been. Some shows helpfully give you a little recap of the previous show as as you know and and they give you the option to skip that and my wife and I always say, "Oh, we got to watch this because we got to get caught up because we we haven't been watching it as as closely as as others do." Not naming any names here as as we talk about binging shows. Um but we've, uh, I'll say previously in the Gospel of Mark, um, we've seen Mark show us who Christ is. Um, in the early chapters, the first 10 chapters primarily, we're really focused upon Christ's ministry, the three years there, about his miracles, his teaching. We learned about who he was, and that, that really culminated in Peter's proclamation in chapter 8, where he said, you are the Christ. And that was a definitive moment, certainly in the life of, of Peter and in the gospel, for us to see clearly who Christ is. Um, we also learned what Christ came to do. He came to seek and save the lost. We, see, we saw that um, especially in chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that those two terms, those two verbs there, to serve and to give, that's, that's what Jesus came to do. And we know, of course, he came to give his life ultimately as a sacrifice for sin. And we'll see the Lord Jesus as he approaches that appalling task as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. In chapter 11, we saw Jesus entering Jerusalem at the beginning of Passion Week to the cries of Hosanna from the crowds. We saw him interact with the scribes and Pharisees, the various Jewish leaders there in chapter 12, in the various questions that were posed to him. Many of those were, were there to try to trip him up. We saw also a growing animosity between the Jewish leaders and Christ. Um, verse uh, Chapter 13, if you'll remember, was, was somewhat prophetic, and, and it, it's, it, was, it was somewhat challenging to look through. And then we get to chapter 14, where we are tonight. 
Um, Previously in chapter 14, we've seen really two very significant events. We saw Jesus being anointed with the very expensive ointment from this woman who came to show her love. And Jesus said that this would be proclaimed um, even after his, his death and resurrection. And then we also saw the Passover. So here we are. We're going to pick up with our reading in in verse 32 of chapter uh, 14. We're in the middle of Passion Week. Jesus has shared his Passover, uh, the Passover meal with his disciples. They've gone to the Mount of Olives, and now they retreat in the the night hours, in in the evening hours to the garden on the slopes of the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane. And here we see Christ's agony. It was not yet the the agony of the nails that would pierce his hands and feet, but the sheer agony of what was before him. The agony of of paying the penalty for our sins. And here we see Christ revealed in a way that Mark has not yet shown to us. We see his humanity in very graphic terms. And I want us to see this in its place in the the storyline of Mark, but I also want us to learn about Christ. And therefore, we'll look at this under four headings, Christ's true suffering, his true humanity, his true obedience, and his true love for his children. True suffering, true humanity, true obedience, and true love. As we, um, before we dive in, let us read our text and pray and ask God's blessing upon it. Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. We praise God that He has spoken to us in His holy and an errant word. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we bow before you and we pray that you, by your word and by your spirit, would, would apply your word to our hearts tonight. Help us to see Christ in his humanity, in his suffering for sinners. Lord Jesus, you came to serve and to give yourself a ransom for our sins. And we see that so much in this text. And Lord, give us grace. Give us eyes to see it. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Christ's true suffering. 
his true humanity, his true obedience, and his true love for us. We see Jesus here in, the, in this opening verse, verse 32, Jesus coming into this garden, this garden of Gethsemane. And Mark, in his uh, usual pace, moves things along rapidly and, and tells us that Jesus leaves, 11, or he leaves eight of the eleven disciples and travels on further with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And there he shares with them from his heart, he says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, we don't know if this is a physical watching. It's, it's, we're not sure exactly what he means, but it could be that. Um, Jesus knows that, that there is physical um, danger coming. But it's more likely a spiritual watching because he tells them to watch and pray. And Jesus here is enlisting the prayer support of his closest allies in his darkest hour. And then Jesus travels on alone from there, where he leaves the three closest disciples, and he travels on alone and prays. <clears throat> and here his suffering begins in earnest. See our Lord, he falls to the ground. He is distressed, troubled. His soul is sorrowful, even to death. Jesus is facing death in less than 24 hours, but Physical death is not what he fears, as ominous as that is. It's not the extent of what our Lord wrestles with here. Here he seems to see the sheer horror of what awaits him. His death is near, but it's not just the death of another Roman criminal. Jesus' death, Christ's death, was a substitutionary death in which he bore the sins of all of his people, in his death, Christ faced the full fury of the wrath of God upon sinners. That is what makes his suffering what it was. Our text makes it clear that it, it was true suffering. He was distressed. That could be translated as horror struck. He is alarmed with dismay at what lies ahead of him. The primary, uh, B.B. Warfield, in his essay, the emotional life of our Lord wrote, the primary idea of troubled is a loathing aversion. A loathing aversion. Perhaps not unmixed, he wrote, not unmixed with despondency. Jesus' self-description is overwhelmed with sorrow, expresses a sorrow, or perhaps we could better say a mental pain, a distress which hems him in on every side, from which there is no escape. Do you hear those key words in that, in that quote? It's a loathing aversion. It's despondency, a mental pain, a distress from which Christ cannot escape in that moment. He had, Jesus had reportedly, repeatedly told his disciples that he was to die. And, and often we read that in the text and it seems as though Jesus says that rather matter-of-factly. But here on the eve of his death, we see that, that Jesus is dismayed at what is before him. The weight of sin is upon him, and the prospect of paying that penalty is upon him. We look in the Old Testament, and we see encounters with, with God, and, and every time there is this, this sense in which, whether it be Moses or Isaiah, they are awestruck at, the, at some presentation of God's glory. Moses upon the mountain had to shield his face. He trembled in fear. 
And that was the God of covenant revealing himself in his goodness and his mercy to his people. But here Jesus is facing the unmitigated wrath of God upon sin. If Moses trembled in fear at God of the covenant, what must Jesus have faced here as he faced the wrath of God upon sinful man? It was of such emotional and physical grief that, to Christ that Luke tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood in this moment. We see Christ's genuine suffering in the language of the text. And we know that it was further complicated by temptation that Satan might have brought to him. Luke tells us when, when he records Christ's encounter in the wilderness, early in Christ's ministry, the temptation in the wilderness, after Jesus had resisted the temptation that Satan brought to him, Luke tells us that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. And here it seems that Satan comes with full force in this opportune time to cause Christ perhaps to even doubt his father's love. And that's Satan's quintessential lie that God does not love us and that God does not give us good things. That's the lie that he brought to Adam and Eve in the garden. He cast doubt on the fact that God is good and giving good things to his children. But this thing that Christ was facing was anything but good to him. But it was the penalty for our sin. So it is for our good. There we see Christ's true suffering. We also see his true humanity. And, and in this text, perhaps in, in more than, than any other, we see Christ's true humanity on display. Remember in Mark 9 where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration again with these three closest disciples, and there's this brilliant display of God's glory. And we see, in a, it seems as though Mark pulls back the veil a little bit and says, here is Christ's glory. Here is, here is Christ's divinity in a sense. And, and, you know, they didn't know how to interpret it. And Peter wanted to build three tabernacles and, and they just, they didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say in that moment. So there we see God's glory, Christ's glory. But here we see Christ's humanity displayed in all its gritty reality. And there's, there's many mysteries that, that we cannot understand about our Lord Jesus, who he was. And it's hard to wrap our brains around how a person can be fully God and fully man. Um, our catechism, question 21, it's my, it's my favorite question and answer, I think, of, of the catechism. It asks, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And it says, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And we see here in this text and in this account of Christ in Gethsemane, his two natures. And we see, his, he, we see his humanity, especially on display. Here in Mark 14, one commentator has wisely said, we have the raw material for later Christological debate. And those debates were, were fleshed out over the, over the centuries, particularly in the 5th century at the Council of Chalcedon. And there the church fathers established that Christ was truly man 
and truly God, but that he is a man with two natures, the human and the divine. And as the great creed of, of that church council proclaims that these two natures are not confused or mixed or divided or separated. But these two natures, the human and the divine, are bound up in one person. There is only one he, as Dr. Derek Thomas liked to tell us in, in theology classes in seminary. There is only one he. There is one person existing in two distinct natures, natures and one person forever. Now, this sermon is not a theological debate, and, and I'm going to leave that at what I have just said. If you are more interested in this, I'll, I'll give Pastor Greco a, a free uh, advertisement. He's going to be teaching on the person and work of Christ starting in March in Sunday school, um, and I'm sure that he will delve into this in depth. But, but here we see it. Here we see Christ's humanity, and we need to see that in, I think, three ways. We see it in his mind, in his emotions, and in his will. So what did Jesus know about the suffering that he faced? Well, we, we, Scripture doesn't tell us in detail, but we see from Christ's reaction that he must have had some sense at the enormity of what was before him. But we cannot mistakenly believe that Christ somehow plugged into his divine nature and downloaded information that informed his humanity. Um, there's, there's probably a name for that. Um, I think it would probably be Apollinarianism. But we, we've got to recognize that Jesus was fully human. And he grew. Scripture tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He learned things. He was human. He came to us as a baby. He had to learn all the things in life that we had to learn. Scriptures tell us that he grew in wisdom and understanding. We know that he prayed to his father. We know that he learned the scriptures and, and that the Holy Spirit enlightened his understanding of them. We know that over the course of his life that there had to be a growing awareness of who he was and what he came to do. Think about it. Think about our Lord Jesus as a young man meditating upon the prophecies about him. Think about that for a few minutes and then think about how those prophecies probably came to him in this hour in the garden and undoubtedly came to his mind as he hung up on the cross dying for our sins. Perhaps Isaiah 53 came to his mind where it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus had a human mind. He had human emotions. We've already discussed the, the words that the text gives us that show his great emotion, the great grief that he faced in this hour. He was sorrowful to death. He was distressed and troubled. He fell to the ground as he prayed to his father. We see his humanity and the support that he needed. He sought out these men, and, and Mark has already told us in chapter 3 that, that he chose, one of the reasons he chose the disciples was to be with him, was to be his companions. And here in his darkest hour, he needed them, and he commissioned them to watch and to pray. And what did they do? They fell asleep. Jesus was a man of human emotions. He needed their companionship. Jesus expressed here very much his human emotions. And we see especially his human will here. 
Jesus not only had a divine will, he had a human will. Here in Gethsemane, his human will seems to be writhing as he seeks to be submissive to the will of his father. He is, yet he's appalled at the task that's before him. It says, our text says that Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He is crying out to his father saying, God, you can, you can change this. He had a human will. Now, some have said this term Abba means daddy. I think that that uh, thinking has been perhaps overused, but we can say that it was a term of familial respect and intimacy. Jesus is here recognizing God as his father, and he's genuinely wrestling with what he has to do. He's asking that this cup be removed. His human will asks, do I really have to drink this? Is there no other way than this cup of wrath that's before me? And then we see that he does submit to his father's will. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. R.T. France, the commentator of, um, that I especially have, have appreciated in various places throughout uh, this study, he said that the Jesus who accepts his father's will does not do so with a docetic Indifference. Now, docetism was a, a Gnostic heresy which claimed that Christ's body was not really human, that what people saw when Christ was on the earth was some kind of a, of a representation, so therefore Christ did not really suffer. So what he's saying here, it was not that. It was not a person who didn't really suffer who is accepting his Father's will in this moment. But it is with mental as well as physical agony which will reach its horrifying climax in the cry from the cross when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we see that Christ was really and truly human in his mind, in his emotions, and in his will. Next we look at Christ's obedience. And he does submit to his Father as we see in this text. We've seen his suffering, his humanity. And let's look for a brief moment at his true and sincere obedience. Jesus prayed. He, he asks to be relieved of what was before him. His human mind and will wrestled with the task that was before him. Yet he was submissive and obedient to his father's will. His human mind and emotions and the physical pain that came with that were all present as he prayed. But Jesus had already taught his disciples to pray, not my will, but thy will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He prayed in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And that was how he taught his disciples to pray. And here Jesus practices what he preaches, that he is obedient. He is submissive to the Father. There's certain echoes in this passage of Psalm 42 and 43 where the psalmist repeatedly cries out, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And that is a phrase that is repeated there. In that prayer, the psalmist consoles himself to hope in God. Jesus did hope in God, but he knew the bitterness of the cup that was before him. Christ was obedient when his disciples failed in their obedience. 
He was obedient to the death, even the death on the cross. He was obedient in bearing the sins of you and of me. And in Mark 14, verses, verses 41 and 42, it seems the wrestling is complete. When he rises, he shows great resolve. He speaks to the, to the disciples a third time, and he reproves them for their sleepiness and their prayerlessness and says, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There is resolve as he faces imminent death. He rises from prayer with purpose, knowing the hour is at hand. As, we, as you study the Gospels, you see that, that phrase, my hour, or the hour, or the time, repeated. And Jesus often says in his ministry, the hour is not yet. The time is not yet. It was not yet time for him to be revealed as the Messiah or to be taken and sacrificed for our sins. But here, what does it say? The hour has come. Now the hour has come. The die is cast. The events will unfold over the coming hours and days. The betrayer is, is at hand. There's no going back. It is now the time of action. And Jesus here shows obedience and resolve in this dark and dreadful moment. We've seen his suffering. We've seen his humanity. We've seen his obedience. And we want to look at his true love for us. Now, I was supposed to preach this last week on Valentine's Day, so I thought i got to tie in love to this text somehow. But you know what? You don't have to paste it on here. Here is true love. And this is not the love that the world tries to sell us that is just a, a feel-good, out for what makes you feel good. This is the love of sacrifice. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Our world has such a distorted view of love, but, but true love, biblical love, gives. True love sacrifices, and Jesus embodies true love for us. He defines true love. God is love. Love is not simply a thing. Love is a person, and love gives. And Christ gave and showed his love for his people. We may look at this and wonder, Look at what Jesus went through, and this is just, just really on the eve of his death. And, and we see here the emotional agony that was kind of a prelude to the actual physical suffering that he endured. And we may wonder, why? Why did the God-man have to die? Why did he do it? Well, he did it out of love. He did it because of mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. And he did it. For his own glory. God is glorified in the redemption of sinners, people of God. And that's an amazing thing that should just blow us away. So we should look at a text like this and, and humbly rejoice when we see what Christ has done. Not because of his pain and suffering, but that through this he provided a way of salvation for you and for me. We may also ask, why did Jesus have to die? Why did the God-man have to die? Why did one who did not sin, who had done no sin, why did he have to suffer for somebody else's sins? That's not fair. Well, 
It was the only way. It could be no other way. Because sin against an infinitely holy God must be paid for by a perfectly holy one. And it was agreed upon in eternity past that Christ would come and that Christ would suffer and that Christ would pay the penalty for our sins. And as we go forward in this text and we look at the events as they unfold through Passion Week, we get the sense that things are happening according to a, a certain plan, even a preordained plan, even a divine plan. That's because they, they were, they did. They did happen according to that. Um, the apostles in, in Acts 4 are praying and, and they, they are praying for boldness. I hope you're familiar with that text. And they recognized it was the hand of God that ordained all things that took place in our Lord's suffering and death. They, they were speaking of the Jewish leaders as they prayed and they said, they, those leaders were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. As mind-boggling as it is, here Christ's suffering was what God had planned for him. And as we said, as we quoted from Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He did it. For us, all of these things took place for our salvation. And herein is true love. Only the perfect son could pay the penalty of our sins against an infinitely holy God. He alone could atone for our guilt. Only Christ. It's interesting to see how that in Genesis 3, we see how our father Adam was in a garden when Satan tempted him. And the first Adam fell. He sinned. He failed to fully obey God's law. He did not trust that God was up to something good. He sinned. In his hour of temptation and weakness, Adam caved. And because Adam was our father, we sinned and fell in him and with him. Therefore, sin came upon all mankind. But here, in this garden, Jesus did not fall. He did not fall to temptation. He obeyed his father's will. He didn't cave. And in the moment of his wrestling with temptation and the task that was before him, he was faithful. And that is why Paul calls our Lord Jesus the last Adam. Because just as Adam's sin became our sin, it passed to us. So the perfect righteousness of Christ is reckoned to us when we come to Christ in faith. Romans 5.19 tells us, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus, our second Adam, obeyed. He went forward with resolve. He set his face to complete the work that he came to do. And he has now paid the penalty for our sin. And if you don't know this Christ tonight, I implore you, come to Christ recognize what he has done through his suffering and death, cry out to him for mercy and seek him to apply this salvation to you. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Trust in him today. And then you can sing with the hymn writer who was in awe of the grace of God and wrote these words. Hail, sovereign love that first began the scheme to rescue fallen men. Hail, matchless, free, eternal grace, the
that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high, despised the mention of His grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light, madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran, Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew, but justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy's angel form appeared, who led me on with gentle pace to Jesus as my hiding place. On him almighty vengeance fell that must have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus became their hiding place. Should storms of sevenfold vengeance roll and shake this earth from pole to pole, no flaming bolt could daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. If Christ is not your hiding place tonight, I invite you to come to him. He suffered and died. He paid the penalty for sins. Salvation is available for you. Let us pray.